0: Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the fourth episode in our new series covering our pain and passion issue. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow.
1: And I'm Peter Mompson, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. In this episode, we're speaking with Jason Lanzel. He's the author of Plow's new graphic novel, By Water, a true story of the 16th century radical reformation. He's an artist for Plow and also a member of the Bruderhof. Because contrary to Christian order and custom, Felix Mance had become involved in anabaptism, had accepted it, taught others, and become a leader and beginner of these things, because he confessed having said that he wanted to gather those who wanted to accept Christ and follow Him, and unite himself with them through baptism, and let the rest live according to their faith, so that he and his followers separated themselves from the Christian church and were about to raise up and prepare a sect of their own under the guise of a Christian meeting and church because he had condemned capital punishment and in order to increase his following had boasted of certain revelations from the Pauline epistles. But since such doctrine is harmful to the unified usage of all Christendom and leads to offense, insurrection, and sedition against the government, to the shattering of the common peace, Brotherly love and civil cooperation, and to all evil, Mance shall be delivered to the executioner, who shall tie his hands, put him into a boat, take him to the lower hut, there strip his bound hands down over his knees, place a stick between his knees and arms, and thus push him into the water, and let him perish in the water. Thereby he shall have atoned to the law and justice his property shall also be confiscated by my lords." So that was the death sentence for Felix Mantz, humanist, young theologian, and co-founder of the Radical Reformation. On January 5th, 1527, the Great Council of Zurich met and read that out to him. And then he was in fact taken from where the judgment was said, uh, back to his prison, and then from his prison, brought to a boat where he was rowed out to what was called the Fisher's Hut in the middle of the river that runs through Zurich, and tied up as described and plunged into the icy waters of the Limmat River, as many Anabaptist hagiographers have recounted, Meanwhile, from the bank, his mother, Anna Mance, is shouting to him, do not give in, Felix. And uh, before he's plunged in, he repeated the last words of Jesus. Uh, he actually sang them into thy hands, I commit my spirit, and died at the age of 29. So Felix Mantz, founder of the Radical Reformation, whatever that is, we're going to get into that uh, also, the hero of a new graphic novel by water being published by plow and we'll have the lead author of that coming on shortly but Susanna, you are an expert in anabaptist and radical (laughs) reformation history well known for your sympathy and interest and sort of non-violent communitarian uh pro freedom of conscience types of people anti-establishment who was felix mance
0: Um, I am entirely not a historian of the Radical Reformation, um, but I can do this. So Felix Manz was born in about 1498 in Zurich, Switzerland. He was the illegitimate son of a Zurich canon, a priest.
1: So his mother, Anna, who's shouting these words of encouragement to him from the bank because he could have been spared if he had recanted, as so many in the Reformation were, was actually, i take it, the concubine of a priest?
0: she was and that was fairly common in in those times and they actually lived on a street uh right near the grossminster church where his father worked um we don't really know much about his early education although he seems to have acquired a thorough knowledge of latin greek and hebrew somehow which is more than i can say for me um he later probably studied abroad in paris where he encountered the works of thomas More and erasmus
1: Right, I believe there's a record of him actually getting a scholarship to Paris, and there, he ran into the frat boy of the Radical Reformation,
0: <laughs> right, Conrad Grable, who is a fellow student with a reputation for brawling and partying, um, who, yeah, with Felix became later a founder of the uh, co-founder of the Anabaptist movement.
1: So brief digression: the soon-to-be nonviolent reformer Conrad Grable. Uh, was Ashley got in big trouble in Paris for I believe killing somebody in a duel.
0: Right, they come back to Zurich or they come to Zurich and uh, lo and behold in Zurich in 1519 when uh, Felix was, what would he be, 21, um, Ulrich Zwingli came to Zurich and became the people's priest at the Grossmuster Church. He was a reformer. He was one of, he was sort of the third of the big three if you think of Luther and Calvin Zwingli was the one who came after them. And he was determined to reform the Catholic Church and he began to preach straight from the Gospel of Matthew and other New Testament books. Uh, And what happened then, Pete?
1: Okay, so the Grossmuster Church is actually, if you go to Zurich, which I've been able to do a few times, and it's one of my favorite cities actually, despite not really being into Swiss stuff, sorry, Swiss people. Um, but the Grossminster Church is, plays a big part in this story because it's right next to Mance's mother's house. I'm going to keep on returning to that. Uh, Mance has no dad, and he kind of cottons on to Zwingli. Swingley is gathering this group of young men, young humanists, together to read Latin and Greek authors, part of the whole ad fontes, humanist, and later reformer thing that you used to do. So they read Homer... Um, but they also read the Gospels. They read a lot of the Gospels because Swingley was preaching straight through the Gospel of Matthew in the Grossminster Church, uh, and in the process, reforming the city of Zurich. And right away, right away, and this is very cool because this is part of the story, Like Swingley is getting together with these guys, I believe, every Tuesday night, if I ever write. And they're studying, they're reading, they're debating the Scripture, they're de- debating old authors. We assume, you know, the words, you know, the Erasmus and, and more are being read. We know Erasmus is corresponding with a lot of these guys. Uh, so, that whole idea of going back to the roots, of not buying into sort of Christendom as it was, but returning to the sources, uh, a purer gospel is very much in the air. And Zwingli um, is doing some really good stuff, Susanna. So he is instituting an entire social welfare system in the city um, by, so to speak, nationalizing or whatever you do when you're a city-state, the religious foundations, the various monasteries that dominated the city. Um, He is also cracking down on the mercenary system that plays a huge role in the Swiss uh, economy, especially for patricians who would kind of get together a bunch of peasants and rent them out to the king of France or the pope um, or whoever, you know, to fight some wars. And Swingley was actually a veteran and had seen uh, action at the Battle of Marignano in Italy between the king of France's forces and the papal forces. Um, an absolutely bloody, brutal, horrible, horrible battle that seems to have turned him strongly against this extremely exploitative... Uh, system of mercenary um, enrichment, sort of like the 16th century form of the Wagner Group in Russia right now,
0: mm-hmm. or Blackwater. Mm-hmm. Although you know, well, anyway, I think more, I think more <laughs> Wagner Group. Okay. Um, so, what happened during this these kinds of Tuesday night sessions, um, late night discussion groups and reading sessions was that quick, Felix quickly became Zwingli's disciple. Um, and, in fact, friend and also fellow worker and together, they actually translated the Bible into German. That was their the project that they did together.
1: Okay, so like a big asterisk for you historians there, like a lot of this is reconstructions that were have been done and were done by the author, Jason lansell based on a pretty thin um, historical record. But it's pretty clear these people are thick as thieves, right, and Swingley has this group of young enthusiasts who are supporting him in what's a very contentious time in Zurich, where you have obviously not everyone loves the changes being done, both liturgical, for instance, the this sort of gradual abandonment of the liturgy of the Mass, um, and the careful removal of icons. There is some iconoclasm, but it's not uncontrolled directly in Zurich. And uh, also these pretty big economic changes uh, that are being made uh, with the sort of winding down of the monasteries. And and so these are these are his. What do you want? You know, I guess if we would make an analogy to say the Chinese Revolution, right? These are. This is his cadre.
0: And just to to bear in mind again, not everyone is going to be happy about this, especially you know within Zurich, and especially outside of Zurich, people have their eyes on this city. Which
1: right, I mean, Swingley was ordained, right? He was an ordained priest, so he's not just some rando. He was hired properly, but then he's taking things a hard steer.
0: Yeah, he's he's going he's going a bit rogue.
1: And the bishop of Constance, who is his hierarchical superior, in the Church, we won't say the Catholic Church yet, because it wasn't, you know, distinct yet, is extremely unhappy and sends an envoy to Zurich to debate Swingley about his reforms.
0: Uh, Do you want to tell a little bit about what happened during that debate?
1: Yeah, well, there's a a bunch of debates, and the upshot is basically that in 1523, uh, the council meets, and here's the bishop's envoy who's defending Uh, the rights of the Diocese of Constance, but ultimately a papal authority. And Swingley is uh, making the Sola Scriptura argument. There is a whole other debate about the relationship of Swingley's Reformation to Luther's Reformation, which of course had begun about two years earlier. Swingley started preaching in 1519. Uh, Martin Luther famously nailed up his 95 theses, if he did, in 1517, uh, but be that may, it may be a a bit of convergent evolution, you could say, and, uh, Swingley and Mance and friends are ecstatic. They imagine, all of them imagine, this new Christian commonwealth purified of all the bad stuff, uh reformed, taking shape within Zurich as a kind of city on a hill.
0: But soon enough, uh, things became a little bit more complicated. So obviously, Zwingli's whole um, approach was back to the sources, ad fontes, let's read the the Gospels, let's stick to um, the text of Scripture, let Scripture alone dictate our faith in action. Um, and Mans felt that Mans and his friends, including Grable, Felt that Zwingli was not living up to this ideal. Um, they saw him making what they they saw as compromises by yielding to the rulings of the city government on church reforms, basically uh, letting the city council decide on what reforms would would go forward that, you know, rather than going straight from the scripture to enacting them through the church.
1: And this is fascinating, right, because this whole debate of what is the place of the civil authority in the church or in the church's teaching, does the civil authority have any authority over the church? Or is the church supreme and autonomous? Uh, goes f- all the way back, you know, deep into the medieval era, right? Canossa, um, you know, the re- the Emperor Hen- Henry having to... Uh,
0: kneel you know, in the snow.
1: Kneel in the snow. All that stuff is playing out in Zurich, and Swingley makes the pragmatic decision. I think it's pretty pragmatic, because I don't think he... Derived it from his reading of the New Testament, uh, that the Great Council of Zurich, the representative of the, you know, the bourgeois uh, segment of of <laughs> Zurich society, is going to be the tool through which the gospel is restored in Zurich.
0: And to a certain degree, obviously, this is something that the we can't really call them the Catholics as opposed to the the Protestants. They call now, them but,
1: the old believers. I the believe.
0: old believers. So to to a certain degree, this is something that the old believers would have been just as upset about as, in fact, Felix was, because in both cases they would have seen this as the state taking a role, taking authority over the church in ways that were inappropriate. But they kind of were looking at it from different directions, or from from different sides of their face, that doesn't make sense, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, so,
1: a- a- and this story has sometimes been told, especially I should say, in, and I speak as an Anabaptist, in this sort of traditional Anabaptist historiography, as this kind of pure debate over ideas, right? You know, the theology of the Magisterial Reformation versus Uh, what later became the Anabaptists, uh, you know, more, you could say, rigorous or enthusiastic uh, approach, if we want to use Luther's language. But really, that's not all that's going on, because there's a huge economic component to this. So there's a huge debate over tithes. Uh, Zurich controls a lot of the territory around it, uh, and The city government, which has now taken over the various ecclesiastical institutions in the city, is the beneficiary of these tithes. So tithes become one of the first things that they fight about. If you can't justify tithes on the basis of the New Testament, as Mance and friends start to argue, uh, that is extremely uncomfortable direction for a Reformation to be taking if you're trying to work with a city government that is benefiting from the tithes paid by peasants, you know, in this pretty big uh, territory.
0: So just a little note on terminology here, magisterial reformation refers to, I think the, the primary referent is that these are reformers who are kind of working with the magistrate, working with uh, city governments, the ministers are working with the magistrates. Um, and the Radical Reformation, that's not the case. So that's that is at least my understanding of the terminology.
1: And so we we notice an increasing split. Meanwhile, things are heating up in the countryside because pre- Felix Vance is preaching, and then we come to this thorny issue of baptism. Uh, the word Anabaptist means rebaptizer, so someone who baptizes someone who has already been baptized as an infant, as was universal in Christendom at the time, and as is also, not coincidentally, the basis of kind of civil control, this unity of civil and religious authority.
0: When you were baptized, that's when you became a citizen. That's when you started to, that was when you had legal uh, sort of reality in, in the eyes of the city.
1: Church membership equals civil membership in civil society. And so Mance and friends, Grable, uh, discuss, as they do uh, about many topics, they discuss the, the question of baptism with Swingley. And initially, oddly enough, he actually agrees with them that their biblical arguments against infant baptism for a voluntary church in which, uh, which you only enter into uh, on confession of your faith. Uh, sort of based on Jesus' words in Matthew 28, uh, that you need to be a disciple uh, to kind of be baptized. That's how they understood it. Uh, He he first says, you know, you you guys have a point. But as uh, political opposition builds in the city and he's navigating between these two wings of the old believers on the one hand, the sort of radicals on the other, And then the council's need, uh, just politically, not to go too crazy, he kind of first puts on the brakes and then completely uh, withdraws from his initial sympathy from this position and says, nope, Uh, on tithes and on baptism. uh, So on these two signs of the unity of civil society with Christian society, uh, we're not actually going to change too much
0: that is really interesting because I had not sort of thought about it in terms of, of baptism being the sign of uh, primarily the problem or not a, a major problem being that it's the sign of entrance into the civil uh, realm as as well as entrance into the church
1: well and that's indicated in Mance's death sentence right where among the things that he is charged with is opposition to capital punishment, so the idea that a Christian can be an executioner, right? Uh, and uh, also his idea that uh, people should voluntarily join together uh, in what the, the council regards as a sect, and he regards as a voluntary church.
0: And primarily, you know, not to get too far away from this, where they were getting this from was not abstract argumentation. As Conrad Grable wrote, we were listeners to Zwingli's sermons and readers of his writings, but one day we took the Bible itself in hand and were taught better. So they are doing the extremely Protestant thing of reading for themselves and coming to their own conclusions. They did their own research. Um, So on January 17th, 1525, a pretty uh, sort of momentous event happened. Pete, do you want to talk about that?
1: Yes. So this is two years before Mance's death. He's age 27 now. And, uh, Swingley has another debate this time with his erstwhile friends and students about the issue of baptism. And not surprisingly, the great council rules. Infant baptism is the way we're going here in the city. They ordered all the uh, Anabaptists, uh, first of all, to baptize their infants, and uh, there were several of them who had had babies, sort of like in the last few months, and had not brought them to church to get baptized, uh, and uh, also bans, uh, I guess by implication, re-baptism of adults on the basis of this new understanding of voluntary Christianity. And so on January 21st, in defiance of this, just a few days after uh, this city council had issued this ruling, the Anabaptists get together in Anamance's house. I kind of view her as this kind of hostess, uh, really, you know, a a kind of uh, 16th century Phoebe or Priscilla, one of those early uh, Christian women who whose houses were a center of the church, and uh, in there, kind of something happens there uh, that is a bit Pentecostal uh, in a sense, but the upshot is that Conrad Grebel kneels down and asks uh, a renegade priest there, George Blaurock. To baptize him, and then in turn baptizes Felix and the others, and uh, this is the beginning of anabaptism and of the radical reformation.
0: So there's actually a line that um, in his defense uh, Mans wrote about why he why they refused to obey the ruling of of, Zur, of the Zurich elders, and. That I think is really striking man's wrote, even if an angel from heaven, even an angel from heaven can't teach other than what has been mentioned above the eternally true word of God will sing in every man's heart. Whether he works against it or not, it remains the truth of God and for some reason this sort of reminded me of Galileo like there's an element there's something very um. I mean, obviously, it's it's deeply Christian, but there's also something that's sort of distinctively early Renaissance about it. There's, uh, you know, nevertheless, it's it, the Earth moves. Um, there's a sort of uh, clarion call to reality that was just striking to me.
1: And it is, it's Renaissance. It's also the spirit of the Reformation everywhere. It's it's Luther standing before the Diet of the Holy Roman Empire and saying, "Here I stand. I can do no other." Right. And so this group, now newly radicalized, and through this act of civil disobedience, voluntary outlaws, uh, begin to preach in public, uh, not so much in Zurich, because that's dangerous, but in the surrounding areas, and offering baptism to any who request it. They find an enthusiastic audience, especially among, uh, you could say, the working class, the farmers, artisans who are worn down by crippling tithes, want a better life, who also want autonomy uh, in their local communities. For instance, the the ability of a village to choose its own priest instead of being having some absent curate wished on them, and for their own tithes to go to the upkeep of their own church, their own village's church. And uh, you could see right away, that there's huge potential for the civil authority to see this as absolutely seditious.
0: But at least by all accounts, we have we have at this time, um, in this particular town, Zalakon, which is nearby to Zurich, there was a real renewal of life among the Christians there. Um, they, they were starting to live out a changed life in a kind of rem- distinctively remarkable way. This was a revival um, that led to changes in people's lives.
1: From my point of view, and we'll get into this a little later in the uh, in, in the podcast, you can already see within days of that first baptism in January 1525, the first marks of this new movement. So the commun- communitarianism in the, a little village of Zalikhan outside of Zurich, people immediately break off the locks and doors of their houses. They share their food. They share their resources with each other. They confess their sins to each other. They ask each other for forgiveness. There's reconciliation. You know, you can imagine feuding farmers who've had grudges against each other, you know, forever, like people do in every farming village I've ever been in. Uh, Reconciling. And it's an immensely inspiring time in, in Jason's book, he ties it, uh, I think a bit speculatively, but convincingly, to the vision of utopia that Thomas More had imagined, but only literarily, of this new society where people are committed to nonviolence, they're committed to communitarianism, to economic sharing, and they're committed radically to this idea of freedom of conscience that a coerced faith is no faith at all. And the city council is very unhappy.
0: Yeah, so this did not last very long.
1: I think we, I think we pulled a, a interesting letter from the Z- uh, Zurich City Council that kind of describes their view of what's going on.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go for it, why don't you read that?
1: For a long time we have had among us one who calls himself Felix Mance. The same has created much trouble and discord among our people by baptizing old people and corner preaching, To such an extent that we ordered him to leave the city. After this, he returned and did as before, disregarding the public proclamation in the church, forbidding adult baptism on penalty of death, loss of honor, and loss of property. Therefore, we arrested him and held him a few days. Interestingly, despite the penalty of death thing, uh, they didn't kill him yet. But because he is an obstinate and recalcitrant person, we released him from prison, and because he is one of yours, this is uh, the magistrate of Shore writing to Zurich. actually. Uh, so he's a Zarek citizen. Because he is one of yours, we have sent him to you with a friendly request that you look after <laughs> him and keep him in your territory, please, so that we may be rid of him and our people remain quiet. Our people remain quiet. And in case of his return, we are not compelled to take severe measures against him.
0: So here's my question. There, he's arrested... And at one point, he escaped. does he escape? Is that a separate he, Like he's arrested escape?
1: and escapes multiple times. Oh, okay. All right. Um, he seems to be a bit of a, a, a handy guy. There's actually a record of him escaping once, but uh, we're not quite sure how, procuring a set of tools with which he returns and frees everyone else from their fetters and leads them out of the city dungeon where a group of his fellow believers are being kept. And they all go off to the woods And uh, interestingly enough, so this is, what, just not quite 30 years after Columbus yet? Uh, A little more than 30 years after Columbus. They imagine translocating to North America and living with, quote, the red Indians over the sea.
0: Wow. So at this point, he's been arrested and escaped a couple times. And, um, at this point, the Zurich government passes legislation, threatening the death penalty for any rebaptizers.
1: And you can see this, the city council and Zwingli, who is increasingly politically powerful in the city. He's no mere, uh, spiritual leader anymore. He's not officially the dictator of Zurich, but increasingly has made himself the kingmaker uh is extremely frustrated uh, and uh that brings us up to 1527 where he's caught one more time
0: that's fi- december 1526 so right at the end of 1526 it looks like
1: yeah 1526 exactly uh held for a number of months one of zwingli's priests tried to change his mind uh even right up as he's being rode road to the execution uh place And that's when his mother is calling to him not to give in. Now, we don't have that much written by Felix Mance. There's a letter to Thomas Munzer, the leader of the Peasants' Revolt in 1523, that seems to be largely, at least a section of it, by Mance, at least that's the going hypothesis, in which he supports Munzer's advocacy for the peasants and for what he views as their just cause but admonishes him that the way of Christ cannot be advanced b- by the use of force of arms. He's nonviolent right from the beginning. We do, however, have a hymn that's in, actually, the Amish hymnal, um, the Auspunt. It's unclear whether he wrote the hymn or whether he wrote a prose text that was then made into a rhyming hymn. Uh, we actually sing it in the Bruderhof communities to this day. and. I'd like to read that because it gives you a bit of a sense of Felix Amantz. This is written shortly before his execution. Uh, The the hymn is called, I sing with exultation, and that's the first line. So he is not desperate or uh, questioning himself right before his execution. Sing praise to Christ our Savior, who in grace inclined to us reveals his nature, patient, loving, kind. His love, divine outpouring, he shows to everyone, and feigned and like his fathers, as no other has done. Christ bids us none compelling to his glorious throne. He only who is willing, Christ as Lord to own. He is assured of heaven, who will right faith pursue, with heart made pure due penance, sealed with baptism of true." So in that last stanza, we see some of those main themes. Christ bids us none compelling. There's no role for state coercion in the following of Christ. Uh, He only who is willing Christ is Lord to own, so that voluntariness, uh, pursuing right faith, and doing penance sealed with baptism. So baptism as a seal of repentance.
0: And there's also a real political, there's a sort of a focus on political allegiance here. So Christ as Lord, like you're, you're throwing your lot in with Christ's kingdom as opposed to the kingdoms of the world. That's sort of how we would have understood it.
1: Right. So, so this is very much inspired by the statement of the first apostles in Jerusalem when they're in trouble with the Jerusalem civil authority, saying, uh, we must obey God rather than men. And so, this is Felix Mance. Uh, it's a fantastic story. It's a story of uh, this strange father-son relationship between Zwingli, the reformer, and Mance, his protege, uh, which then ends with Zwingli's blessing, the execution of his erstwhile you know, spiritual son. Really, really compelling. Just a little housekeeping before we continue with the rest of our discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met. And we'll be back with the rest of our conversation with Jason after the break. And with that, we should probably invite on Jason Lanzel, who's the lead author. Uh, This is a graphic novel, so there's a few. Uh, Jason is, I guess, in film language, sort of the producer-director of the book. Rich Momsen, who's my brother and the producer of this podcast, is a script writer, and Sanka Banerjee uh, did a lot of the art. He's the, we'll talk about him a bit with Jay later, uh, an artist from Calcutta, India. So welcome, Jason. You know that line, um, Christ bids us none compelling, right? So people hear the word anabaptism, they probably think of Amish, Mennonites, you know, people driving around in buggies. Uh, the whole debate over the age at which one should be baptized, I think we'll get into that a little bit later. But really, uh, what it boils down to is this issue of compulsion, of coercion, you know, of what what is the place of state power in regard to faith and to freedom of conscience so we're going to dig into this a bit later in this podcast but just to kind of tease for our, our readers right uh, some of the one of the topics we love to return to on this podcast is the relation of faith of Christianity to public life to society you know, political theology is the word right and so there's some things in Anabaptism in this story of the radical Reformation that, Leap out, you know the question of nonviolence, right? Um, that that death sentence that I read at the beginning singles out the fact that Mance condemns capital punishment, right? Which ironically was one reason why he himself was put to death, right? Um, so nonviolence, uh, freedom of conscience, so this lack of compulsion, and then uh, another thing that you bring out beautifully in the novel is what happens in this little hamlet of Zollicon, right? They have this. This revival, right? It's like Asbury, maybe, um, and immediately, you know, these n- newly radicalized peasants, basically, uh, they share everything, right? I mean, there's uh, there's this kind of outbreak of this Book of Acts, you know, Pentecostal, uh, all things in common, sharing sharing everything, right? Jason, am I uh, am I over describing that?
2: Yeah, no, there's a remarkable little book written about this by a man called Fritz Blanca. And um, yeah, he describes, I mean, it's a very spontaneous result of this renewal and people finding a new life. They talk about, you know, breaking locks off their doors, sharing possessions, meeting in each other's homes, you know, forgiving each other, look, a greater looking after our, their neighbors. Um, you know, it was, it was a very spontaneous, free and lively church experience. And it didn't last long, but, it, you know, it happened and it was quite remarkable. So we'll,
1: we'll drill down on that in a bit. I mean, I bet you will, Susanna, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, because some of these things, you know, freedom of conscious nonviolence, economic sharing and equality, that sounds kind of liberal. Um, yeah. Those are ideas that were super radical in 1525.
0: And are still radical today to a large degree. Well, right, some of Right, but are. they're
1: ideals that are pretty widely affirmed. So this is why the story matters. Um, my, my point is only that, although it can sound like this really niche, incident from reformation uh, it's kind of relevant to a lot of the things we talk about today
0: so what i'm wondering about first though is how did you get interested in this how what's your connection to the story and like how did you first hear about this
2: it goes back quite a ways actually i mean I, uh, this particular project was pitched to me a few years back and i've had a very long-standing interest in both the medieval and early anabaptist history um, coincidentally, back in the eighth grade, I was assigned to write a report on Philip's story for history class, so we go back a ways. And I've been inspired to explore this story and that history more over the years. And on a more personal note, uh, my wife, uh, she is the descendant of these early reformers, her, her background is from the Hutterite background. And um, so an inspiration for me was to also explore and bring this story alive for both my family and her family and, and you know readers nowadays to learn from and be aware of this. Um, so those are a couple of the, the things that, that drove me to pursue and work on this project for as long as we have.
1: And of course this was uh, the mad story, what was happening in Zurich with Ulrich Swingley. So there's this happening sort of on the intellectual side and then simultaneously there's this pretty massive revolutionary movement that gets kind of lumped together under uh, the category of Peasants' War, uh, which breaks out in 1525. Do you want to talk about that a bit, Jason? What are the sort of the economic stressors, and what's the connection between that and this kind of radical Christian vision that Mance is talking about?
2: Well, from my reading and understanding of the the, the Peasants' War, actually started out um, as a very biblically-based to reform society and use the Bible again, uh, you know, as, as the sort of blueprint for how societies be structured. That of course was very, That uh, happened um, due to, the, you know, the rejection of the petitions and efforts of the early peasant leaders, and then very quickly became, the, the movement became very violent. But um, interestingly, you know, as the Anabaptist uh, missionaries went out, they often went to these areas that were uh, had very close connections to the peasant revolt and found actually great response and um, many uh, converted uh, from the, the ranks of these, these people that had uh, been drawn to this, this revolutionary uh, warlike effort. And, and as that failed and, and so many, you know, horrifically killed, again, we're looking for something different and new that might actually bring change and bring, you know, uh, something new to, to their lives. So it was a very close connection between the two.
1: I mean, Marx and Engels, you know, identified that peasants' war as a sort of a proto-socialist movement, right? I mean, what were some of the demands of the peasant war? You actually have a character in the novel who is associated with that peasant's revolt.
2: I don't have the the, uh, 12 points of the uh, peasant thing in front of me, but again, it was was basically restructuring of society, economic justice, uh, you know, fair governance, um, equal rights to land, you know, the right to uh, work and be, you know, survive, <laughs> you know, be paid and, and uh, fed in a way that, you know, was, was people could live and, and survive. And that is uh, freedom from just an oppressive uh, governing system.
0: And also, of course, the, um, the organ- the social organization that that happened during the revival in particular, it's, you know, it was called community of goods. It's been called communism. And that is something that we associate now with um, state communism. But communism is a more general term. So these are all kind of like, um, it's. it feels to me like these are all sort of like political ideas, which are, we see them in their first, like looming out of the mist of the Middle Ages. We see sort of modern political ideas or political ideas that look sort of familiar. Um, you know, you talked about freedom of conscience, uh, nonviolence, nonviolence, and communitarianism, and a couple of the freedom of conscience is something that tends to be looked at as a kind of liberal value. Um, nonviolence and communitarianism tend to be looked at sort of as liberal, but more as left, um, if you want to make that distinction. And it is really easy to kind of look back at this and see, as Marx and Engels did, or as you know, contemporary. You know, um, kind of progressive liberals might want to see this as like the first flowerings of something that would later become its real self, like later become political liberalism.
1: It would shed and its, secularism, yeah. It right. would shed shed its Christian overlay, and we'd talk about right. the real, you know, good material materialist socialist stuff.
0: Right. So it seems to me, though, that that would actually be. You know, and and that that sort of view of history, where like things are progressing, and and you know, this is often called the Whig interpretation of history, and this fits very well in a way into that interpretation. But it also seems to me like that would be to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of what was actually going on. Even though this this kind of um, this might seem like proto liberalism, it actually was built on something quite different. Um, this was something that was thoroughly Christian. So. How do we see the difference between those things?
2: I think what's inspired me about this story is again, they, they their desire was to, in, many, in, in every way possible, to sort of to disconnect from any sort of worldly system, or any worldly governance, any, you know, human institution, and to rely and, and live entirely based on what the Gospels and the will of God was, and that's one of the things that I, I think is so strong about this this their this example of their story and and. and um, and how many, all these different levels, whether it's nonviolence, whether it's, you know, uh, structure of the church, baptism, you know, the, the church life is set up. It all came down to what is God's will. You know, this wasn't had nothing to do with, you know, what people thought that, you know, cared very little or, or not, not at all for what the, the opinions of, of perhaps, you know, who people considered more learned uh, teachers and reformers might have said or thought they were convinced and felt in their hearts that this was the way to go and they also wanted to live it out in in very you know clear and specific ways um for example you know the way they they they, they conducted and lived their lives was a very um strong feature to, to to this movement and 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 even their their enemies and detractors you know had had to point out like for instance um this this is a quote here from Swingley's uh, last, uh, one of of his last writings against the Anabaptists in 1527, where he says, if you investigate their life and conduct, it seems at first contact irreproachable, pious, unassuming, attractive, yea, above this world. Even those who are inclined to be critical will say that their lives are excellent. And many of their enemies throughout the years pointed out that, you know, the way they, then this was a a very strong component of the movement that you living it out, not just preaching and talking about, it, but living it out was such an important, and vital part. And very specific uh, things are mentioned, you know, about you know how they how they conducted themselves in public. And you know, for instance, there's uh, another uh, take from a, a Roman Catholic theologian who wrote a, an article against the Anabaptists, saying it concerns their outward pu- public life. They're irreproachable no lying, deception, swearing, strife, harsh language, no intemperate eating or drinking, no outward personal displays found amongst them, but humility, patience, uprightness, neatness, honesty, temperance, straightforwardness in such measure that one would suppose that they had the Holy Spirit of God.
0: But it was something that, unlike with sort of contemporary liberalism, wasn't focused on self-determination so much as they were they were trying to live out the Sermon on the Mount because they believed that this is what God commanded and God sort of empowered Christians to do. They were just trying to live as thoroughly, you know, a distilled version of Christianity, um, like a double distilled discipleship as they could. So so what, what, what were the, I mean, what was the heart of the objection? I mean, it, it was kind of an interesting, um, when Pete was reading the, the death sentence, It seems to me that the heart of the objection was, you know, where it says follow him and unite, follow Christ and unite himself with them through baptism and let the rest living live according to their faith. So this was kind of seen as a drawing apart from the rest of people in society and a breaking up of the church. This was a threat to church unity.
1: But wasn't it, uh, Susanna, Ashley, not just the church, but Mm -hmm. it was the church allied with the state that they were breaking away from uh and you know i don't know if jason disagrees with me but but my interpretation of this story is why was this a threat why did it merit the death penalty not because it was somehow theoretically heterodox primarily uh, but because it threatened the political and social and economic system of you know uh, 16th-century Europe, and, and these were not new ideas. I, I, I'm not even sure that Mance would have seen it as a sort of double-distilled discipleship. Um, so take the idea of, of freedom of conscience. This is a deeply Christian idea. It goes back to the early church. Uh, Tertullian famously was the first to identify freedom of religion. Uh, that was his term as a, quote, human right, unquote, Uh, and had written, this is 200 years after Christ, right? Um, See that you do not end up fostering irreligion by taking away freedom of religion, libertas religionis, and forbid free choice with respect to divine matters, so that I am not allowed to worship what I wish, but I'm forced to worship what I do not wish. It gets not only at Sort of a liberal idea of liberty, I can do whatever I want, is ultimately about the nature of, of faith itself. You know, is, is a coerced faith real worship of God in the first place? And, and so I, I think each of these claims, um, you know, these characteristically Anabaptist claims, are not modern. They're certainly not invented in the liberal Enlightenment, there's stuff that goes back to the, the very roots of, of Christianity. Certainly economic sharing does. You know, the B- book of Acts tells how the believers shared all things in common, you know, sold everything, laid at the apostles' feet. Uh, and then nonviolence. Uh, well, you know, I know, Susanna, you, and, <laughs> and, and I disagree about this one, but well,
0: the I'm New Testament, the New
1: Testament, no, 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 you're not pro-violence. But the New <laughs> Testament is a pretty explicitly anti-violence set of texts, I think it's fair to say.
0: I would agree with that.
1: Okay. So, uh, Jason, do, uh, am I, am I, what w- what's your feeling on this? Because I think a lot of the, a lot of what matters about Anabaptism today has to do with this idea of voluntariness versus state coercion, state force, state violence, uh, the very literal state violence that Mance himself suffered.
2: No, I think it's it's a very vital part of the, the and, and this this free choice, free decision element. To they they you know they didn't want people that were didn't want to do it freely and willingly out of you know as it says the joy and delight of your soul, and we're also willing then to make the sacrifices. Um, this choice made at that time, you know, I mean going back to where, the inspiration for where we got the title of the book from the um, early, Anabaptist texts um, where a membership, you know. Uh, members promise faithfulness until death and it, it says each should first count the cost carefully as to what he has to give up but he should not counsel with flesh and blood for those who would enter God's service must be prepared to be attacked and to die for the truth and for the name of Christ if it be by God if it be God's will by fire water or the sword so it was absolutely very much about a choice made freely and you know again out of the desire and and intention of the individual's, you know, soul and and willingness to commit and, and give absolutely everything. Property, giving in their property is, became a very, very important, you know, uh, element to this, as they did in the early churches described, you know, people came and laid their property at the disciples' feet, again, willingly. Um, so I, I would agree very much, yeah.
1: So, th- so this text you just read, this early 16th-century Anabaptist text, and I have it in front of me before, uh, before me as well. Um, it's probably from dates from after Felix Mance, but that's where the title comes from: "By water, right uh, uh-huh. to die for the truth and for the name of Christ, if it be but God's will by water, by fire, or by the sword." Uh, and just, just. Uh, so, folks know, uh, Plough is the publisher of this book, and it's the first of a trilogy. Uh, and there will, in fact, be not only by water, but also by fire and by sword coming up. Isn't, isn't that true?
2: Yes, we are currently in the process of, of working on the next one, which is by fire. So, that, look for that soon, hopefully.
1: <laughs> there's, two other, there's two other things in the air that are um, not... Completely visible in this first book of the trilogy, uh, but I think it's just worth mentioning because they both, you know, also seem kind of relevant, right? So you have this violent sort of revolutionary movement from below, the peasants' revolt. You have humanism going back to the sources, uh, both of Christianity, but also just sort of of Western civilization with the classics and people studying Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Uh, but then you you have a threat from without, right? You have the threat of Muslim invasion of Europe. So this doctrine of nonviolence and communitarianism is is pretty threatening when you if you're a ruler in in sixteenth century Europe and you're worried about the Ottomans invading uh, with huge armies, as they in fact do just a few years after Felix's death. Uh, there's a kind of fifth column sense to the Radical Reformation that were undermining the will of Christendom to defend itself militarily, and then uh, the system of of tithing, which of course wasn't a, a voluntary thing either, but a, a huge source of economic oppression for you know your ordinary person.
0: And I think that it's sort of interesting to sort of see the um the the question of the threat from without and the need for solidarity within as a kind of nested thing because of course Zwingli who is the one who had power over Felix Manz and and Zurich were themselves pretty you know shaky you know they had they had they had some backing from German princes the Reformation did but it still kind of must have felt like a very fragile thing within Catholic Christendom and so there is this kind of Perpetual fear of the the fifth column that that ha, that works on both the Catholics and and Protestants together who are worried about the Muslims, and then the protest the Magistral Protestants who are worried about the Catholics. So the Anabaptists are kind of like the subject of a lot of different nested layers of fifth column fear.
1: I mean, Conrad Grable, Mance's buddy, right, uh, and fellow sort of. Fellow fighter, I guess, fellow nonviolent fighter in the Radical Re- Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he has this weird family, right? Uh his father is the leader of the Catholic faction within Zurich against Swingley. Um oh, I
0: forgot about that. That's so
1: weird. I mean, weird. we almost Jason, <laughs> you almost put is this in the book, right? Um uh, the the untimely death of Grable's father. Execution of his father. <laughs> yeah. So Swingley was also killing Catholics at the same time. In fact, Grable's own dad. I mean, that was a weird story. What? How did that happen?
2: Well, one of the, uh, Swingley's reforms was to abolish the, the mercenary movement, which was quite a profitable uh, enterprise for Switzerland and, and the canon of Zurich included, and um, in what. Later, appeared to be sort of trumped up charges of Conrad's father getting you know back involved and taking payments again from this mercenary you know system. He had him very quickly um, executed in public, you know, beheaded in the in the town square um, in a very sort of rushed trial. They they I believe if I remember correctly, you know, had the gates of the city shut right in the middle of the day, and he was an older man and had him dragged out right in the middle of the town and very quickly. Uh, Beheaded, but again, I think, as Susanna said, um, Zwingli himself was under a lot of pressure to, you know, give the impression of being in control of the situation in Zurich. There, you know, whether it was, it was uh, the other reformers or the other you know, surrounding cantons, that was definitely that element, and and he needed. That's also why he needed to come down so hard on, you know, Mance and the others. Um, you know, could, there could be no um, indication of, of weakness or, you know, that there were loopholes in what he was trying to do there. So um, that's absolutely uh, played out in the, in this story.
1: Zwingli is, is actually a kind of sympathetic figure, right, to me. I mean, although, like, in the way we've been talking about him today, he's the bad guy who, who kills our hero. You could just imagine him trying to keep this, this city-state together, and you have... You know, the old believers, the, the what would later be called Catholics, you know, opposing you as you, you know, dissolve the monastic foundations and, and reform the liturgy and, and so on. And then you have these radicals who are your old friends. You're actually, you know, I mean, Swingley's almost a father figure to, to Felix Mance.
0: Right, that's the sort of emotional center of the book, I would say.
2: Yeah, so so we try to train, you know, that this man is looking for a father or, you know, a mentor, like in that sense, yeah.
0: So, you know, we talked about the way that this is not a sharp break, you know, from things that were present in the very early church. It's also, Anabaptism is often thought to be a sharp break from medieval Christianity, but again, it's not necessarily as sharper break as is often thought. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, things like the Devotio Moderna, um, and the, the sort of um, the medieval spirituality that this was coming out of?
2: Yeah, you know, my understanding of the history is this, the Anabaptist movement came out of a, like a, a long thread of the spirit working in history for many, many hundreds of years, you know, prior to this, you look at the Waldensian movement, the Franciscans, the Beguines, the Beguards, many others who you know people wanted to get and get back to the the spirit, the essence of what true life lived in service and, and, and to Christ and the gospel really meant. And um, so I would say, absolutely, you know, it, it was a just sort of a continuance and maybe just a a bigger outbreak of this working of the spirit through you know medieval ta- history and and the world, you know, leading up to this, there's many, many figures, and um, inspirational movements, where, you know, in their own way, I mean, they didn't break entirely out of the, the church structure, but worked to try and reform, and, you know, again, live a more godly, you know, Christ-centered life in, in, in the, their, that, their setting. Um, and then the Anabaptist Spoon, I believe, was, you know, to see as a continuation of this, um, this that movement, and, and you know, people working to, to live out more true and pure faith.
0: And some of those figures are um, inspirations to the Bruderhof now, including Thomas Akempis and Meister, Meister Eckhart. We can include some of those links in the show notes if anyone wants to dig more into that.
1: Right, I mean, there's this long tradition of of I- the imitation of Christ, You know, of, of course, that's the title of of Thomas Akempis' classic book, uh, what, 500 years or a little less before Felix Mance? So this idea of, of discipleship, of, of imitating Christ, of going the way of the suffering Christ, w- was certainly not something the Anabaptists invented, right? They, uh, they were carrying forward, you could say, some of those same inspirations that also, you know, made a St. Francis or a St. Claire or a St. Elizabeth of Hungary you know, forsake worldly success in order to be closer to Christ and to be closer to the poor.
0: And of course, the critique of worldly clerics, um, you know, the the whole, which obviously Felix's father was one, um, because priests by this time really were not supposed to have concubines, um, was not something that the Anabaptists invented. This was a, there. there were, reform movements within the Catholic Church that had been critiquing these things for a long time.
1: They definitely took it to a, a, another level. I mean, I guess all these guys did, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Luther on on Worldly Clerics is quite something, but then again, some of the Counter-Reformation Catholic authors on Worldly Clerics are quite something.
0: Yep, they are not happy either.
1: Not happy at all. <laughs> you know, um, switching this, the topic a little bit, uh, it would be great to hear Jason a little bit about the research that you put in. I mean, you, you've traveled over and, and gone to a lot of these sites, uh, and that is also obvious from the artwork itself. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me about, you know, I I got to say some fairly rave pre-publication reviews from Kirkus Reviews, forward reviews from Mark Russell, who's the Eisner Award winning author of. Um, the graphic novel's not all robots, and my bad um, focuses on the artwork, the way that you know this sort of medieval visual idiom, uh, you know, shows up in in your book. So, how did you immerse yourself in that whole world?
2: Well, I've had a long-standing interest in comics. I go back to as a kid, more on the uh, Marvel DC level, but then later discovering and reading the works of graphic novelists like Alan Moore, Will Eisner, Mike McNola, Hayao Miyazaki, and many others, and developed a real appreciation for the graphic novel format and just the work and, and the way uh, these artists and, and many others have presented stories and, and brought them alive. So um, I guess in researching this, I had a lot of this inspiration in the background on how can we tell this story, which again is a very unique story, a very niche kind of story um, in a way that would have a, a broad appeal to, you know, a wider range of readers, and not just people, you know, maybe interested in religious history. But um, so I also being a person that enjoys research and, and this type of stuff, um, you know, obviously it started out with just a lot of reading, um, you know, dozens of books, looking at this story from all kinds of, you know, different angles, from you know, historical to the art to the, you know, social. Uh, the uniqueness of the time, social practices, geography, maps, um, that sort of thing. And then really did a deep dive into the artwork, being also, again, someone that enjoys and uh, appreciates art. Um, the many different artists of the time period, um, you know, just seeing what their take was on, you know, life at this time, and then sort of making notes of, of the different uh, pieces and. and Works that I thought might add and contribute to the story, um, and then as Pete mentioned, uh, we had a chance to travel over to Europe a few years ago, and do pretty extensive. I did pretty extensive research on the different locations that we might con- consider including in the story, from you know caves up in the mountains to farms to you know paths up over the Alps where the you know and later the later you know upcoming books would have evacuated and escaped to. Uh, churches you know um to execution sites the prisons dungeons you name it you know in this case you know the the street you know where Felix grew up and lived most of his life with his mother um the gross bunch of church you know to see that you know the, the distance between or swingley's house and where Felix lived is literally you know a minute or two walk they were, they were literally neighbors with each other you know to bring that you know, these different elements into that story to, um, you know, and again, also, you know, uh, I enjoy museums Went to many, many museums, uh, both in Europe and then, you know, the Met down in New York has been an incredible inspiration and resource and, you know, just again, just details, um, things, you know, elements we can include in the visual. So in developing this, um, as well as writing the story, then I also sort of, I did a lot of, uh, concept art character sketches you know pre-drew a lot of, of spreads and ideas which then when it came time to produce the book um, you know in, in collaboration with both Sanka the artist and, and then rich and working on the script all came to be very useful in in, in putting this uh, this book and story together and, and particularly the artwork you know working very very closely with, with Sanka um, again is, is we discussed earlier his second's background is is in you know indian mythology you know wonderful you know books and presentations he's done on that and he had very little or actually no um bat, you know information or background in this particular story or the subjects we covered and to be able to work together um in creating this you know frame by frame um going back and forth was remarkable and, and, and a very a great you know again a great collaboration and working together so i'm quite pleased how it turned out and and and, uh, and that the reception has been as as good as it is so sanka
1: banerjee did the actual artwork under your sort of creative direction and i mean when we first started working with him you know i was involved as uh the book editor uh from the publishing house side. And I remember wondering how this guy who specializes in some pretty out there, uh, you could say, uh, Hindu uh, myths, um, was gonna, how is he gonna handle 16th century reformation history? Uh, And I thought he just, he brought actually a really great sensibility to the project. Kind of fresh eyes.
2: Yeah, I, I was, again, very appreciative, especially some the more, um, some of the more imaginative spreads like the opening spread and some others throughout the book where he, you know, like, again, we, we shared uh, similar interests in artists with, you know, uh, Hieronymus Bosch, or Bruegel, you know, Albrecht Durer, others, you know, we based specific scenes around uh, paintings and works by those artists specifically. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm interested in a lot of the sort of uh, apocalyptic, you know, of uh, art and fervor of the time, um, the Augsburg Book of Miracles, other similar works, you know, um, you know, and just sharing those together, uh, creating the different spreads and frames. It, it was it was it really worked out. And it was great.
0: I'm just so curious about like what it's like to come come from a completely different culture and sort of religious setting and encounter these ideas and these these stories um, for the first time or maybe not for the first time I'm sure he had some background of christian knowledge but um just cuz it's part of culture in india as well but what what were the conversations like
2: i i, def- I definitely had to explain you know, things like baptism or you know I, I think actually a lot of these things were, were quite new to him he has no particular religious uh faith per se but then you know and working together and then as he began to understand the story and also understand Our connection to the story, you know, uh, living here in in the Bruderhof and um, our personal interest in it. And now we also try and continue to live out a lot of this. His appreciation it grew and and it was actually really great. So, a lot of the back and forth we had just just as it began to, you know, the pieces sort of began to fall into place and realizing what this was actually really all about. And, um, you know, I'd say after having done one book and now we're starting on the second, you know, we're just. There's a much a really good a really good connection there on, on what we're actually trying to accomplish in this sense of the, the also reverence for the story um and an appreciation for what these people did and how they lived and, and the commitments and sacrifices they made so
0: and of course the third person involved in this is actually our sound guy pete's brother rich hi rich <laughs> so yeah this it i mean looking at the book you can see it um you could see that it's a labor of love and a, really, and a labor of care.
2: It's been quite a journey, and, and the fact that it's actually, the book exists and we can now share it with the rest of the world, I, I, I find very expi- inspiring and exciting. So, There's something so
1: interesting about the graphic novel as a genre, right? I mean, just watching this take shape, it struck me that it's a lot more like directing a movie than it is like writing... You know a a text narrative, and uh, it really jumps off the page. It's super intriguing uh, t- to experience a story like this visually. You know, I think there's only like three thousand words in the book, and yet for this pretty complex little piece of of, of history, which had huge repercussions down to today, far beyond just sort of narrowly what happened to the Anabaptists, um, it, it's just something I'm super ex- excited about and very glad to share with our listeners today. Uh, needless to say, dear listeners, uh, check it out. We're gonna drop a link to the book in our show notes. Uh, you can also check out the first chapter, uh, which we published in Plow's spring 2023 issue. Uh, which follows the boy Mance, and he has this kind of underwater vision of the founding saints of Zurich, F- Felix and Regula, uh, whom he's named after.
2: That was one of my favorite, uh, one of the, my favorite threads in the story was, was working that legend into this 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 and making that connection where, you know, again, as a boy he encounters these and then how he later, at the end of his life, makes that connection to the the wider uh, circle of, or cloud of witnesses, as it says in the Bible, the, the the martyrs, those who have gone before.
0: Is there any indication that he thought of them or that he was like, do we know for sure that like, like, do we have words from him or from others that he was inspired by them?
2: No, just that it's very much part of Zurich. I mean, culture, I mean, the two towers, the the, the, the Grossminster Church, the two towers, the, each tower represents one of each of them. Yeah, the le- really- I'm sure he would have been aware of the legend. I mean, it's very much. Still quite right. Yeah. This was
1: a pil- This was the pilgrimage destination.
0: Mm-hmm. It really does seem like if you don't, if you really want someone to not uh, have a kind of like passionate commitment to potentially dying for their faith, you don't really want to tell them stories about people who they are named after who did that when they are children.
1: So, for for folks who like me didn't know the story of Felix and Regula, there are two early Christian martyrs, sort of the patron saints of Zurich. Who I believe are from North Africa, but are in a Roman legion. Is that correct?
2: Uh yeah, it was a Thebian legion. Um they refused to pledge allegiance to the Emperor, and then the Emperor had the entire legion executed. Right there. The two of them on
1: the Limet River where Well,
2: they there it was another site that Felix and Regula and then another uh, individual escaped and then were captured by the Romans on the banks of the river there, and then uh actually the uh there's a crypt beneath the Vasserkirche on the Lima where there's what's called the Martyr's Stone, which you can still see today, where they were supposedly beheaded. And then there was the crypt and the bones, which were supposedly belonged to the saints, was like, again, another uh, pilgrimage site, which Swingley did away with during the Reformation. But um, so it's definitely, he would, Felix would have been aware of this.
1: Right, I mean, he was literally, was born a stone's throw away from where these martyrs were executed and buried and where pilgrims were showing up. So I think, I mean, like many things, you know, in this story, we, of course, don't have a lot of Felix's original words, uh, but he absolutely would have grown up in a oh, world yeah. where these were big figures. I mean, he was named after them. He was yeah. literally named after the martyr Felix.
0: And it's so interesting to me to sort of like think about, you know, obviously a huge part of the Reformation, both magisterial and radical, was kind of shedding of the cult of the saints. And yet understanding the saints, those saints and, and, and you know, martyrs in general as People to imitate and people who are, you know, part of the cloud of witnesses. It's not shutting the cult of the saints. in it, it it's sort of putting it into its proper place. That's like there's not a kind of alienation from them.
1: Well, it's in that sense that we are recommending this book. And thanks for joining us, Jason. This has been a great
2: conversation.
0: Thanks so much, Jason.
2: Thanks again for having me. It was great talking, and uh, appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plough community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plowcom slash membership to learn more.
1: On our next episode, we'll be talking about China's underground churches.